Hello and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate centrists and independents. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and it has been a minute. This is our first episode back after a brief hiatus, and I am so excited to be back and be with you. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about some exciting updates of mo- er, for Moderate Party. I'm going to answer listener questions, and we're going to talk about the stories dominating this week's news cycle. Let's get started. The first thing that I want to discuss is the hiatus that we just ended. I launched this podcast in November of 2020 because I felt that polarization was marginalizing moderate voices and ultimately causing damage to our country. Soon after that, the riots at the U.S. Capitol prompted me to really think hard about extremism in America and the role that moderates must play in ending it. Along the way, I've talked to some incredible guests about democracy reform, polarization, moderation, and a lot more. I mean, you know, you guys were there. The response to this podcast so far has exceeded any expectations that I could have had at the beginning. Honestly, it's been so positive. I had to take some time to step back, reply to all of your emails, get organized, and plan out the next few months of the show. Hence the hiatus. We're going to be rolling out some new segments, episode types, and merch over the next few months, and I am so freaking excited about it. A lot of the ideas that I'm going to be implementing came from you, the community, the listeners. The number of people listening to this podcast has increased exponentially. Moderate Party now has listeners in 21 countries and 47 out of 50 states. Side note. If y'all know people in New Hampshire, Alaska, or Alabama, tell them to listen to Moderate Party because I gotta catch them all. I'm very competitive, and I just need three more to have all 50 states help a girl out. Also, while I'm shamelessly promoting the show, if you aren't already subscribed, please do. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that lets you, please give the show a rating, preferably five stars, and leave a review. Stuff like that's important because it helps other people find the show. Algorithms, you know? Anyway. Back to you guys. I've talked to a lot of you through my personal email. You've reached out to the show. I've gotten your feedback either via email or on Twitter. And it's just, honestly, it's been such a joy. I hope this isn't starting to sound like a farewell episode. It's not at all, I promise. It's a thank you. I feel profoundly humbled that you take the time to listen to me and to invest in this show. Time is the only thing that we don't get more of, and the fact that you choose to spend some of your time with me makes me feel sincerely grateful. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It means the world to me. All right, enough of the sentimental. Let's get on with the episode. Today's episode is actually an exciting one because it's the first episode in a new series we're doing called What the Fuck is Going On? A conversation about the news. Thus far, Mod Pod episodes have been primarily interviews or deep dives on particular topics, and that isn't changing. But most of the listener questions that I've received so far are basically some version of, I read this in the news, what does this mean, is this important, what's going on? It's hard to keep up with the news. You have to read a bunch of articles, and some of you express that you don't trust the bias in the media. So I'm going to be doing these episodes weekly or bi-weekly, depending on the news cycle, to talk you through the news and answer listener questions. Fun, right? Since this is the first one, please let me know if you like this sort of thing, or if you want me to get back to yelling about democracy and polarization. Alright, let's kick things off with answers to some of the questions that you guys have sent over. Also, full disclosure, you sent way more questions than I was expecting, so I won't get to all of them in this episode. But we'll be answering every question, so stay tuned. 
And if I don't answer it on air, I will send you a reply if you re- reached out via email or I'll get back to you on Instagram uh, or Twitter in the DMs if it's one that we're not going to answer on air, but I will still provide you with an answer. Also, just to be honest, some of y'all's questions were really hard and I'm still researching to give you a good answer and figure out how I feel about the question. Shout out to you, Michelle from Oregon. All right, here we go. Our first question today is from Jay in Nevada. Jay wants to know, should Jeep stop using the Cherokee name? It doesn't feel as cringy as the Redskins because it's just a name, not a racist slur. I feel like some of this stuff is getting out of control. What do you think? Okay. For those of you listening that aren't familiar with the news, the principal chief of Cherokee Nation made the official request to Jeep to stop using the Cherokee name on their vehicles. This is the first time that they have formally made this request, and he was pretty straightforward with the language. He said, I'm sure this comes from a place that is well-intended, but it does not honor us having our name plastered on the side of a car. So Jay, to your question, should Jeep stop using the Cherokee name? Yeah, they should. And here's why. I I think that names belong to the people that hold them. The word Cherokee belongs to the Cherokee people. And if they don't want Jeep to use it, then Jeep shouldn't use it. Let me put this another way. Imagine a car company released a new car with your name. Not named after you, but just bearing your name. So for me, that would be the Ford Hillary Lombard. Now let's say they sell millions of those cars without ever asking or paying you. Wouldn't you be annoyed? When people heard your name, they would think of a mid-sized SUV instead of you, the person. Which, I mean, let's like no dig against those people. There would be a million of those cars and less of you. So let's take it a step further. The car they name after you sucks. It's a lemon. Looks like a PT Cruiser and the brakes don't work. A bunch of people lose a loved one all because they were driving the Ford Hillary Lombard with the garbage design and the not working brakes. Now when they hear your name, they associate it with a horrible murder bus that killed a bunch of people. I didn't do that, but it doesn't matter. Association matters. That's why it's so cringy that people are still naming their children Isis. Because when you hear that name, your first thought isn't of your friend's cute kid with a regrettable name. It's definitely of the group that's beheading women and children in the Middle East. Obviously, this is an extreme example, but you get my point. The word Cherokee belongs to its people, and if they don't want you using it, you shouldn't use it. No company has a greater right to their name than they do. All right. Next up is Caitlin from Massachusetts. She writes, Hey, Hillary, thanks for the stickers. I'm really liking the show. I was wondering what you thought about the minimum wage. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema vetoed including a minimum wage increase in the COVID relief bill while they have the luxury of making at least $90 per hour. These are the moderate Democrats. So I guess what I want to know is, do you support raising the wage? Do you think that they represent the moderate point of view? Oh, and do you think that they represent the moderate point of view? Okay. The short answer is, yeah, I do think that we should raise the minimum wage. However, I don't think that it is as simple as just setting a number and federalizing it. I think you really need to look at regional variations. For example, Huntington, West Virginia is about 40% cheaper than Denver, Colorado. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to have the same minimum wage in both places. I'm much more partial to the argument for a regional minimum wage. Even having a regional minimum wage fully replace the federal minimum wage in an effort to account for these type of variations. I also think that we should really look at 
what our expectation is for a minimum wage. For example, I think that when you are 16 years old and you're working at Panda Express or a water park or something like that, you do not require the same wage as somebody that is, say, um, a parent with two kids at home. I'm interested in conversations surrounding why so many people stay at the minimum wage. Why aren't they advancing to a higher wage? And looking into things like wage stagnation, I think that is almost a larger problem because if wages weren't so stagnant in this country, then we would have less people permanently dependent upon a minimum wage. They would be able to advance. So the minimum wage would be a temporary starting place as opposed to the income bracket that so many Americans get stuck in. The data on it is also inconclusive. A lot of people on the left like to tout the statistic that the Congressional Budget Office estimated raising the minimum wage would lift 900,000 people out of poverty. That's awesome. That's a win. We love that. But they also said that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would lead to the loss of 1.4 million jobs by 2025. In addition to that, they estimate that the federal budget deficit would actually increase by $54 billion over the next 10 years. So less poverty, but also less jobs. And if there's less jobs, does that then inadvertently increase poverty? I'm not sure. I don't think that there is really an easy answer to that question. Which is ultimately my way of circling back to my opinion about the issue in the COVID bill. I think that the minimum wage should be a separate piece of legislation. In general, I'm pretty opposed to giant bloated bills. I think that they skirt the democratic process and really just ram ideas down the throat of the opposition. I think that this is a complex problem that warrants its own process, essentially, where they can look at some of the questions that I raised and questions that people that know a lot more than me will inevitably raise and, you know, work through this and try to find a solution that is actually going to be lasting and meets the moment. Now, if they do not do that, I think that is a serious oversight. Circling back to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, voted no and gave the thumbs down in a way that was really pretty irritating. And I'm generally a fan of Senator Cinema, but she gave the thumbs down in a way that had her looking more like Bart Simpson than a U.S. Senator. And it's just, it's not a great look. To your other question, do I think that they represent the moderate point of view? I don't think that any one person can represent the moderate point of view. It's not as ideologically narrow on issues as being a liberal or a conservative. I think that being a moderate has more to do with what you believe about democracy, the function of government, problem-solving, pragmatism, and practicality. It's more, I think, moderates create space to debate issues. I think that they hear everyone out, they listen to parties, but they are not slaves to them. I know that's not a clean-cut answer that you're probably looking for, but that is what I think. What do you think? Caitlin, if you want to keep the conversation going, send me an email at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Now, with all that being said... I do have a bit of a side rant on this issue, and this is not directed at Caitlin. I think that she asked that question from a sincere place. I tried to give her a sincere answer. So this rant is completely a sidebar. What I cannot stand is the hostility coming from the left towards cinema and mansion over their vote. 
It is insane. If you do a quick search on Twitter for either of their names plus minimum wage or Democrat, the vitriol that you will see in those tweets is crazy. And granted, it's Twitter, so I expect people to be awful there. But the here's some that I found. Joe Manchin wants Mitch McConnell to run the Senate, and he doesn't give a shit if black people can vote or not. Awesome. Another one. Major Democratic goal in 2020, gain a Senate seat so we can ignore Joe Manchin for the remainder of his time on Earth. Another, Kirsten Cinema is a dino, and don't forget it. I will never vote for her again, and I regret that I voted for her in the past. For the record, dino stands for Democrat in name only. It is crazy to me that some people on the left can chastise Republicans for not having the courage to vote their principles instead of going in alignment with their political party, and in the same breath when members of their party vote against them, all of a sudden they think that person should be primaried. Grow up! Trump won West Virginia by 40 points. If Democrats could somehow beat Joe Manchin in a primary there, which I don't think that they could, they would lose that seat. And the state of West Virginia probably for decades. If you were excited that Democrats won Georgia, then you should be equally excited that Joe Manchin sits in West Virginia. He should not go along with the party on everything because West Virginia is not a blue state. His constituents, who he represents, do not support every aspect of the Democratic platform. So he, as their voice, shouldn't either. He's being a faithful legislator. Get out of here! And cinema? Arizona is a purple state! It should have a purple senator! Don't at me. All right. I'm sorry. I just, I have really strong feelings about that. I cannot stand hypocrisy from either party, honestly. It's, it is, it's a trigger, guys. Okay, back to listener questions. Allison from California asks, is Joe Manchin a Republican? No, he is a Democrat. In this country, you can identify with whichever party you want. There's no ideological purity test. So if Joe Manchin says he's a Democrat, he's a Democrat. Okay. Next up is from Crystal in Texas. Crystal says, Hi, Hillary. I'm a new moderate party listener. I really love the show, and I really admire the way that you're able to talk about things emotionally but also credibly. My boyfriend and I listen together, and he's more conservative than me, but he takes what you say really seriously. My family is more conservative than me, and whenever I try to talk to them about things I really care about, like climate change or immigration, they're really dismissive, and they basically throw my views out the window because they don't think they're credible. They don't think that they're credible because they're liberal. Even if I show them data to back up my points, they don't care. Do you ever struggle with this, and what do you do about it? Okay. First, Crystal, like that that message was super nice. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy that you listened to the or to the podcast. I'm happy that um you listen with your boyfriend that you guys both find value in. So, with your question, I definitely have struggled with that in the past, not necessarily having my views dismissed because they're super liberal, but having them dismissed just because they're not the same as whoever I'm talking to, especially when I'm talking to people that are older than me. So I think in terms of what you do about it, I try to start 
with what are my goals in having this conversation? What am I actually trying to achieve? Am I really trying to change their mind? Am I trying to foster a conversation or a debate? Or am I trying to prove that I'm right? Trying to show them the light, if you will. If your goal is the latter, honestly, I don't think that you should venture into that conversation because if you go into a conversation with the sole goal of proving that you're right or validating and vindicating yourself, you're not going into it for the right reasons and you're not really looking for a conversation, you're looking to give a TED talk or some sort of sermon. And I don't think that's fair to the other people involved. And there's also really no way that they could make you happy in that situation except to completely throw out their own lived experience and their own opinions in order to fully embrace yours, and that's just an unfair expectation. That being said, it can be incredibly tempting to go into a conversation with that in mind, especially when you feel that other people are being dismissive of your views. It's like the more that they dismiss you, the more that you want to prove them wrong, right? But I think that you should keep in mind that probably applies in the opposite direction also. So the more that they feel that you are dismissing their values, the more they want to prove you wrong. And then you end up with two people in a conversation that are not listening. They're just waiting for their opportunity to talk or points to debate. We're all guilty of this sometimes. It is, it's a very tempting trap. One of the things that I look for as an indicator if I'm slipping into this place is if I hear myself saying, but a lot, for example, yeah, I hear you, but because then I'm arguing them point for point, uh, which means that I'm thinking about points. So that's something to be aware of in your own behavior. The last thing I'll say on this is ask more questions and talk less. So if you approach the conversation in a way that makes the person think that you just genuinely want to understand, then I think that you're starting in a positive way. For example, when I've talked to a lot of the Trump supporters in my life, I try to come at it not to obviously try to switch their vote, but just to understand why they feel that way. And I think that asking questions really helps because it also gives them an opportunity to talk so they don't feel that you're trying to dismiss them, right? Because you would love if they asked you questions about your point of view. And I think that when you do, when you ask more questions, when you show more interest in understanding them as opposed to trying to change their mind, then they, in my experience, will treat you the same. Nobody trusts a salesman. You know, if you come in wanting to debate, then their guard's going to be up. But if you come in to understand, they will be more open to you. And I think truly, like, if you come in looking to understand them, you're going to find things that you agree on. And tell them that. It makes it very clear that you're not their enemy. I try to always find some bit of the truth that I can agree with. And if it's not a stance on a policy issue, I can usually find a feeling that I agree with. And say that. Give, show them that you don't think that they're a bad person. Because that's what it does. If you're like, I agree. I also feel afraid when that happens. Or, I, yeah, I can see how that must be frustrating for you. Or, I don't love how people on my side are behaving either. It shows them that you're not judging them. And I think that in today's political climate, both sides feel so judged by the other side that that really, really lowers the temperature in a conversation. All right, sorry, I, that answer ran a little long, but it's something that I'm pretty passionate about and still trying to figure out myself. So if you guys have a tip that you don't think that I hit on, let a girl know. All right, let's get to the news. 
This week, the U.S.-Mexico border has been getting a lot of attention. Apprehensions have exceeded 100,000 in February. That's up 28% since the previous month. And so far, this year's surge is set to be the biggest in two decades. So the Biden administration is turning away thousands of adults. They're using Trump-era COVID regulations to kick people out pretty quickly, but it's made the decision to allow children to stay in the country as their refugee claims are reviewed. So reporting indicates that children are being kept in a border patrol facility that's meant for adults much longer than they are legally allowed to be held there. The situation is looking pretty dire. We've got more than 14,000 minors who have traveled to the U.S. without their families and are currently held in federal custody. Biden came out swinging against Trump's immigration policies during the election, so there's a lot of pressure on his administration to get this right. People can't really agree on what's driving the surge. If you ask the Biden administration, they'll tell you that it's because Trump's policies built up demand, and now that demand is surging. Republicans will tell you that by rolling back Trump's immigration policies, Biden has actually told people the border is open, come on over. And I, I honestly don't know enough to tell you who was right and who was wrong, but I do think that the correlation between a change in the White House and an influx of migrants is pretty difficult to ignore or explain away. Still, migration advocates contend that the Biden administration policies are definitely a factor, but they're one of many factors that are ultimately pushing people to make the decision to head to the U.S. southern border. A reason for the increase in detention is that U.S. authorities are allowing more migrant families to stay in the country while they figure out what to do with them. And this is actually a notable change because recently... Mexico has decided that they're unable to hold those people. A new Mexican law bars the government from housing children and families in adult detention centers. So many critics of this policy argue that if the U.S. continues to hold them, Mexico is never going to adjust. So they're basically saying that Mexico is passing the buck. Either way, no matter whose fault it is, no matter why it happened, the surge in migration is stressing the system. It's part of the reason that kids are being held so much longer than they're legally allowed to. The system is, it's overwhelmed. And to the Biden administration's credit, they are urging migrants not to come. Here's DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas with a message to migrants considering making the journey. Do not come. And let me explain why I say do not come. It is um, born of a very different approach than the prior administration. It's do not come because it is not safe to take the journey it is not safe in a time of pandemic to arrive at the border. Families and single adults are being expelled. Let us build, let us rebuild, if I may, a safe, orderly way for you to apply for humanitarian relief under the laws of our country. That is who we are. It is do not come, but while we are rebuilding the system that was dismantled by the prior administration, we will make the conditions as safe as possible for the children whom we are not expelling. The statement's a powerful one, but statements aren't policy. Which brings me to what makes this issue so difficult. There is no clean-cut answer to immigration in the crisis at the border. The fact is, we live in one of the greatest countries in the world. And the situation in countries south of the border is pretty rough. It, things are bleak, particularly in Honduras and Guatemala. 
The region is very unstable, and as a result, people are always going to be seeking a better life, and America has very proudly declared that our country is the place to do that. So long as the situation south of the border is what it is, we're going to have an influx of migrants trying to get into the country, and we need to decide how we want to deal with that. Our immigration system is outdated, inconsistent, and overtaxed. We have yet to find a program or policy that's going to fix that problem. However, this week, the House of Representatives did make some progress. On Thursday, they passed the American Dream and Promise Act, which would provide a legal pathway forward for dreamers. They also passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which would grant legal status to hundreds of thousands of farm workers living in the United States without authorization. Those bills got bipartisan support, and they're now headed to the Senate. I think that they have a pretty good shot at passing, but you know how the Senate likes to disappoint me. So we'll see, and I'll keep you posted. One more thing that I want to address before we leave this topic is the lack of transparency. I'm really concerned, and I think that you should be too, with the efforts that the Biden administration is taking to scale back on transparency. Reporters have reported that ride-alongs at similar facilities that were commonplace during the Trump administration are actually now being denied by the Department of Homeland Security. Additionally, they've denied press access to the border tour that the DHS secretary is going to be taking with members of the U.S. Senate. Transparency is critical in situations like this. Consider how horrible the situation at the border was when Trump was separating children from their families. We never would have known about that without the hard work of journalists. Denying that denies the American people the transparency that they require. It's a representative government. You represent us. American citizens have every right to see what's going on, how we're treating people. So I'm sincerely hoping that the Biden administration will open back up to the press. We all benefit from transparency. The only people that don't are the people that are doing something wrong. Speaking of doing something wrong, I want to talk about Russia and Iran. The director of national intelligence released a report this week that said that the U.S. officials did not find any evidence that foreign actors tried to alter the technical aspects of the voting process, such as registration files or vote counting. When they say that, they mean hacking voting machines or making it so people can't vote. So none of that. Love that, especially because in 2016, Russia did try to actually hack the machines. They weren't successful, thank God. Progress! So I was reading that, I was feeling optimistic, and then I read a little bit farther down the page, and I found out that some U.S. adversaries, including Iran and Russia, quote, spread false or inflated claims about alleged compromises of the voting system to undermine public confidence in the election process and the results. Awesome! That's, that's particularly nice to know, considering that right now our country cannot collectively decide if the election was free and fair. The report goes on to say that Iran and Russia engaged in a broader effort to elect their preferred candidate. For Russia, that was Trump, and for Iran, that was Biden. A particularly juicy tidbit from the report is this. In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized influence operations, quote, aimed at denigrating President Biden's candidacy and the Democratic Party, supporting former President Trump, undermining confidence in the electoral process, and exacerbating socio-political divisions in the United States. I hate this so very much because if you've been listening to this show, you have heard me rant and rage about polarization and the impact that it's having on us. 
And then to find out that a foreign government is actually trying to exacerbate that to tear us apart because they also see how dangerous it is? That is really, really concerning. So, our man Biden hears this, and he's obviously pissed. So, during his interview with ABC News, George Stephanopoulos asks him about Putin, and our man Biden says this. So you know Vladimir Putin, you think he's a killer? Mm-hmm, I do. Damn, Biden, tell us how you really feel. If Biden and Putin were teenagers fighting on Instagram, this would be the point where Putin would say it to my face, coward. But it turns out Biden already did. You said you know he doesn't have a soul. Well, I did say that to him, yes. This man gives so few fucks about Vladimir Putin. It might be my new favorite thing. Except Putin, not to be outdone, responds like the Bond villain that he is. To And his response was, we understand one another. Can you imagine being so confident in your evil genius status that when somebody's like, you have no soul, you're like, guess you've been paying attention. Now, in case you're 106 and you hear this and you're like, oh, Biden, why are you being such a wise guy? Don't worry, Biden has a comeback for that too. I wasn't being a wise guy. I was alone with him in his office. That's how it came about. It was when President Bush had said, I've looked in his eyes and saw a soul. I said, looked in your eyes, and I don't think you have a soul. And looked back at me and said, we understand each other. What fun dinner guests these two must make with all this warm and personal conversation. It's unclear what kind of a response Moscow will have. Is it? Because I actually feel like it's pretty clear what kind of response Moscow is going to have, and it would turn out that I'm correct. Since this conversation, Putin recalled his ambassador to the United States, then at a press conference in which a reporter asks Putin if he has heard that Biden called him a killer and what he thinks about that, he deadass looks into the camera and says, I wish him good health. Like, what? It feels like we're all living an episode of The Sopranos. I wish you good health with eye contact made from very dead and soulless eyes, as Biden established previously, is probably the last thing that you want to hear from a killer. The story is still pretty new, so I really don't have more to tell you than that, but wow, wild. Okay, moving on. The filibuster. If you've been watching the news recently, there's been a lot of talk about the filibuster. So basically, the filibuster is a Senate rule that requires 60 members to end the debate on a topic and move to a vote. It can cause a pretty steep barrier to any incoming president's policy agenda because if you're unable to get 60 votes, any proposed legislation cannot move forward. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about reforming the filibuster or abolishing it altogether, but up until this week, Joe Biden had been firmly opposed to filibuster reform. However, in that interview that I played for you earlier, George Stephanopoulos asked him if he was going to have to choose between reforming the filibuster and passing his agenda. And Biden said, yes, but here's the choice. I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do what it was used to do when I first got to the Senate, and that is... A filibuster, you have to stand up and command the floor. So you gotta work for the filibuster. And then George Stephanopoulos asked him to clarify, so you are for the reform. You're bringing back the talking filibuster. And Biden said, I am. Now, I don't want to get into the technical aspects of what the filibuster is, if we should reform it, if we should abolish it, what my opinion is on it, 
because we have a standalone episode coming up that's going to get into all of that for you. In fact, I didn't even intend to talk about the filibuster today. I didn't want to bring it up in this episode. I wanted to move right along and close out with the final news story that I'm going to give you after this. I was minding my own business, and then something terrible happened. Mitch McConnell rose from the coffin that he sleeps in during the day and said this. So let me say this very clearly for all 99 of my colleagues. Nobody serving in this chamber can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like. This is an institution that requires unanimous consent to turn the lights on before noon to proceed with a garden variety floor speech, to dispense with the reading of lengthy legislative text, to schedule committee business, to move even non-controversial nominees at anything besides a snail's face. So Mr. President, I want our colleagues to imagine a world where every single task, every one of them, requires a physical quorum, which by the way, the vice president does not count in determining a quorum. Everything that Democrat Senates did to Presidents Bush and Trump, everything the Republican Senate did to President Obama, would be child's play compared to the disaster that Democrats would create for their own priorities if, if they break the Senate. Pretty sure that Democrats aren't the ones that are threatening to break the Senate. They're looking at a rule change, and you can agree with that or don't, up to you. The person that is arguing to break the Senate is the guy that's saying that he's about to vote not to turn the lights on every day. That's the guy that's trying to break the Senate. Let's be very clear about that. A couple of you have messaged me and asked why I have such a problem with Mitch McConnell, and it is shit like this. McConnell is the man that took pride in his nickname, the Grim Reaper, a name he earned based on how many bills he was able to kill when he was in charge of the Senate. He brought the Senate to a halt for four years or more, and he's proud of that. He's trying to use Senate procedure to bend the Senate to his will, even though he is out of power. Americans made the choice. They gave Democrats the Senate. Is the majority slim? Yeah. Yeah, it is. But they still won by millions of votes across the country. And Mitch McConnell is no longer the Senate majority leader, and he can't handle it. So he is trying to use procedure to bend them to his will to keep Republicans in power. Saying that if Democrats abolish the filibuster, you'll refuse the consensus necessary to turn the lights on or dispense of reading a long bill is a waste of taxpayer money and a complete dereliction of duty. Threatening a scorched earth Senate is not a threat against Democrats, it's a threat against America. The government belongs to the people of this country, it does not belong to any one man or any one party. A U.S. senator's salary is paid by the U.S. taxpayer. They, you aren't a king. You're an employee, or at best, a guardian. And you are charged with guarding and governing. So the idea that Mitch McConnell has the audacity to threaten to obstruct the U.S. Senate to punish a political party is one of the most 
outrageous and un-American things that I have heard from a U.S. senator in a long time. And the confidence to look into the camera while you do it and makes it clear that he is completely divorced from his responsibility to govern. Frankly, he doesn't want to govern this country. He wants to rule it. This hypocritical hyperbole, this bullshit, this is how power-hungry people talk when their personal power is threatened. And it, it gets me so hot, guys. It gets me hot and bothered because the Senate is not his to take. The basic function of government is what he's paid to provide. Can you imagine, let's just, let's take this out of a political context. Can you imagine if you drove into work, imagining that we're not in a pandemic and not working at home, you drive into the office and you see all of your coworkers standing outside and you're like, oh, gee, what's, what's everybody doing out here? And your coworker tells you, oh, you know, Mitch from Human Resources, yeah, he's locked himself inside and says none of us can come in. And you're like, oh, that's, uh, that's weird. Why is Mitch doing that? Oh, you know, he's mad about the PTO policy. Can you, there's no situation in which that guy gets to keep his job if he doesn't open the door. But for some reason in the U.S. Senate, we have lower expectations of you than Mitch from Human Resources. And, and that is fucking ridiculous. I could scream, guys, I swear. All right, our final news story for this episode has to do with the mass shooting that happened in Atlanta. Earlier this week, at least eight people were killed and several others were injured in a series of shootings at three spas and massage parlors. Police apprehended the shooter, Robert Aaron Long, a 21-year-old white man from Woodstock, Georgia. The victims were mostly Asian and mainly women. The shooter said that he targeted the spas and massage parlors because they were a, a, quote, temptation he wanted to eliminate. Atlanta Police Chief Rodney Bryant said that it was too soon in the investigation to say whether the shootings were a hate crime. The Georgia State Representative said that the shootings appeared to be, quote, the intersection of gender-based violence, misogyny, and gene xenophobia. I think that's probably pretty accurate, but what the incident has drawn awareness to is the disgusting rise of anti-Asian, I mean, racism and attacks in this country. It's something that I've witnessed firsthand in Sacramento. I've had several incidences over the co course of the pandemic where I've heard from people that I know or, I mean, even strangers about discrimination and nasty things that people have said to them just because they're Asian. In the last year, there have been 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents. That's up over a thousand from the previous year. And we aren't talking about it. Conversations about race relations are largely dominated by whether you support or denounce the Black Lives Matter movement or your thoughts on police versus protesters but we are completely ignoring an uptick in racist incidents targeting an Asian community. Asians in this country are largely taken for granted and dehumanized. Uh, it's a continual pattern, and honestly, it is probably the racism that I have witnessed the most firsthand in my life. I've seen men in downtown Sacramento refer to a woman as a Chinese bitch. 
I've seen people that I went to school with make jokes about having slanted eyes. I've seen a guy on the campus of the University of Nevada, Reno, dry hump at a girl and say, me love you long time, me love you long time. And it's just, it's not funny. None of it's funny. And too often it is swept under the rug because Asians are viewed as a less vocal minority group. The other factor that cannot be ignored is the violence against women. Did you know that one in three women have experienced some form of physical violence from an intimate partner? And one in 10 women have been raped by their intimate partner. It gets even worse when you take the intimate partner out of the equation. One in five women have been raped in the United States. Three out of four women have been verbally harassed and 81% of them have experienced sexual harassment. 82% of homicide victims that are targeted by their intimate partners are women. They're being murdered by people that they trust. They're also more likely to be the victims of a sexually motivated homicide. That man in Georgia killed eight people because he could not handle sexual temptation. The fact that we grow that kind of monster in the United States of America is disgusting. The day after these women were killed, the House was set to vote on reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act. This act, originally written by Joe Biden in the 90s, is largely uncontroversial. However, this year, the bill was altered to include provisions uh, that would close the boyfriend loophole which basically means spouses convicted of domestic violence are banned from owning guns, but non-married partners or ex-partners are not. It would also make it so if you were convicted of a misdemeanor, such as domestic violence or stalking, you couldn't buy a gun. 29 Republicans joined with the Democrats to pass, this, or to pass the reauthorization. Quick shout out to the people that sponsored the bill. That's going to be Sheila Jackson Lee, a Democrat from Texas, Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania, who is also a moderate MVP. Shout out to you, Brian, and a Democrat from New York named Jerry Nadler. But what's concerning to me is that the day after all of those women were gunned down in Georgia, 172 Republicans voted against renewing the Violence Against Women Act. Their objections were primarily centered around the fact that it would stop people from buying a gun in certain circumstances. Meaning that 172 Republicans voted in favor of guns' rights and against women's rights not to be shot with said gun. I think that in general, guns rights are a complicated issue, and honestly, I do support responsible gun owners' rights to have them. I do. But this is ridiculous. If you are convicted for domestic assault, stalking, or domestic violence of any kind, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that you should not own a gun, especially when you look at how many women are murdered every year by an intimate partner. It's ridiculous. If you live in Alabama, Georgia, Nevada, North Dakota, Texas, Nebraska, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Colorado, North Carolina, Florida, 
Wyoming, Ohio, Virginia, Utah, Arkansas, California, Tennessee, Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Idaho. A representative from your state who could potentially be your representative voted against the Violence Against Women Act. You should hold them accountable. I'm including a list of the people that voted against it in the show notes. Look and see if yours is on there. And with that, I'm concluding today's episode. It has been an absolute delight to answer your guys' questions. If you like the pod, please subscribe and rate the episode. And if you want your question to be answered on the air, feel free to email me at talk at moderatepartypodcast.com or head to moderatepartypodcast.com and click on ask a question. I'd love to hear from you guys. All right, stay safe and be well. See you next time.